You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hi, my name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And I'm back here today for the next episode in our Liberalism for All series. My guest for this uh, third installment, I think it'll be the third installment, is Michaela Novak. Michaela has a doctorate in economics from the Royal Institute of Technology in Melbourne, Australia, and she's currently working on a second PhD in sociology at the Australian National University in Canberra. She has two incredible books out already that I highly recommend um, if you haven't encountered them yet and had a chance to read them yet. Her 2018 book, Inequality, An Entangled Political Economy Perspective, which we'll be talking about on today's podcast. And then just last year, a new book titled Freedom and Contention, Social Movements and Liberal Political Economy, where Michaela applies her sociologically intelligent liberal political economy approach to the study of social movements. Um, And in that book, she includes historical and contemporary cases of social movements. She looks at the quest for the freedom to self-govern in the American Revolution. She talks about civil rights, women's rights, um, equal treatment for the LGBTQ community. So it's a fascinating blend of historical and contemporary cases uh, that she takes this liberal political economy approach to. In this discussion today, Michaela talks about liberalism as being a broad bucket. She highlights the deep historical roots of liberalism, which exists in different forms around the world. And in this argument for liberalism being a broad bucket, she includes a variety of ideological positions that include some version of commitment to open markets, open societies, freedom of association, and inclusive democratic political institutions. We also get into the difficult territory of the fact that as inspiring as that liberal vision is, liberal institutions also ask a lot of us. They require us to not just get along with, but actively negotiate with people who have different views and aspirations than we do, sometimes radically different. And that can be really hard. Um, So Michaela gives us her answer to the question of whether liberal orders are possible and whether they're capable of sustaining bubbles of illiberalism for those who hold fundamentally illiberal views. She talks about freedom of association as a core operating principle of liberal societies and how the work of James Buchanan and Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom can help us think about freedom of association in a democratic society. There are certainly tensions in those bodies of work that we don't have full time to get into in this podcast. So I do hope you'll check out the next Hayek Program podcast episode after this, where I talk with John Metacraft in more detail about Buchanan's work in the Constitutional Political Economy Program as a political economy for equals. 
Um, Michaela and I in this episode also talk about the idea of good inequality and bad inequality, which is the idea that some forms of difference are to be celebrated in the sense that we can all bring our gifts and talents to the table. And this is what enables us to cooperate to mutual benefit in both economic and political spaces. But there are bad inequalities as well. And the liberal project is just as much about critiquing and correcting oppression, discrimination, and othering as it is about celebrating those productive forms of difference. Michaela identifies some of the main drivers of inequality in law in recent history. And we wind the podcast with a little optimistic note with some opportunities to continue to move forward towards a free and open society for all. Now, there is at least one error in the conversation because I claim I was working on my PhD when Michaela wrote her first book, which just goes to show that I've apparently not come to terms with my age because I finished my PhD well before she was writing. Um, Fortunately, there is plenty of room for error and learning in these long run conversations like this centuries long dialogue about liberalism that we're trying to to have a little part in today. Um, So I'll just chalk it up to a learning experience. I mean, I definitely learned a lot in this conversation, so I I won't prevent you from listening to it any longer. Without further delay, Dr. Michaela Novak. Well, welcome, Michaela. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Um, we're, as you know, we're doing this kind of mini series for the, the Hayek program on the question of liberalism for all um, with the idea behind that, tr- trying to explore some of these thorny issues about the relationship between liberalism and equality and what does it mean to live in a society where liberal values kind of apply for everybody and everybody gets to have that experience of living in a, in a free open society and, and what the world looks like there. And so of course, naturally with your work on inequality and on social change, I, I thought of you right away as something, someone that we absolutely had to have on this podcast. Um, and so just to give some foundation here because we've had a couple conversations already, but they've been more focused on specific issue areas. So I thought it would be kind of nice to start at the beginning and just ask you in your studies, with your background, with your approach, what does liberalism mean in your mind, in your view? Um, So thank you uh, for the opportunity, uh, Jamie. It's a great pleasure uh, to be here. Um, Before I sort of arrive at, uh, I guess, at an approximation to a working definition of what liberalism means, at least for me, I'd I'd say a couple of things about uh, liberalism. So the first thing I'd say about it is that uh, it's an ideological, moral and philosophical ecology of thought with actually an astounding and astoundingly diverse array of scholars, commentators, and even activists involved uh, in its development. So you can think in this sense, anyone from, you know, anarcho-capitalists to uh, small state minarchists, even through to uh, welfareist uh, liberals, uh, could probably find themselves uh, quite appropriately sitting within uh, the liberal camp, so to speak. 
Another another statement I'd just make about uh, liberalism is that um, as a body of thought, it possesses actually a very long-run architecture. Uh, it developed in Europe, uh, especially during the, the 17th and 18th century in its modern form. It extended out, as we all know, to the United States and other initially British colonial outposts around the world. Um, in saying this, it should very much be appreciated that the core tenet of liberalism, at least, centred upon the fundamental dignity of the individual uh, and the value of freedom, liberty and individual rights can be detected and discerned in non-Western cultures. So we actually see liberal thinking very clearly evident uh, in East Asia, the Middle East, Africa, elsewhere. So this, this, this points to a, a universalist tendency. Uh, of uh, liberalism as a body of thought. Okay, so despite all of the internal differences and the uh, variegated historical background, I would argue actually there is a reasonable degree of coherence uh, that is identifiable with liberalism and it's reflected in a series of uh, commitments. So the first one, and probably for, uh, I guess, a modern uh, reader uh, would be uh, the first one would be market-based economic arrangements, and they're exemplified by competition, entrepreneurship, and innovation. The second key commitment, as I see it, of liberalism is of a civil society exhibiting openness, a, a key thing that you want to uh, raise uh, during this podcast. Uh, and this openness is uh, revealed through freedom of association and the institutions of free inquiry and expression. The third uh, plank, uh, a plank of commitment for liberalism is a democratic political order uh, characterised by limited government in accordance with the rule of law. Um, so for me personally, uh, there are actually two key factors which drew me to, to, to liberalism and so which lead me to proudly self-label myself as a classical liberal. Uh, so the, the first issue is that liberal economic thought provided for me a credible explanation for the failure of Soviet-style central planning uh, that I witnessed actually, for, you know, crumble and disintegrate during my late teens. So this phenomenon deserved explanation and liberalism provided at the time and still does, in my view, the most credible explanation as to what occurred. And the second uh, factor is that I largely view change within human societies as being beneficial and valuable, not only for individuals implicated in change, but for the broader society that is affected by change. Um, you know, Hayek in his Constitution of Liberty, his famous 1960 tract, for example, did speak, especially in his epilogue, uh, about a liberal not being fearful of change. And I and this is this is a, a normative value-based commitment that I share. So for me, um, liberalism is the only vital philosophy in existence that I see offering a set of narratives that embraces change and doesn't convey fear and antipathy uh, toward it, uh, or even similar manifestations such as you know, difference uh, between individuals. Certainly insofar as change and difference is the byproduct of mutually agreeable interactions between persons. So this is what liberalism means for me. First of all, I really appreciate that you pointed out that liberalism is something that we see in 
different cultures and different belief systems around the world, because I think there is a misconception sometimes that it's a purely Western philosophy um, as opposed to autonomy and openness actually being ingredients in a variety of other belief systems. Yeah, I, I, I look, I certainly agree with that. And uh, the, the sort of the academic characterization of neoliberalism, for example, sort of tends to equate uh, modern instantiations of liberalism with uh, some sort of, uh, you know, sort of Western cultural, political uh, style of arrangements. Whereas I, I think, you know, one of the many criticisms that can be made of this caricature of neoliberalism is that, in fact, the, the thirst and the desire for freedom can be found everywhere around the world by every by literally everyone. Um, so I, I think what you say is actually quite critical. Yeah. Um, and this, so this idea of a thirst for freedom being something that's universal, I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to that. Like, like it sounds very good to me. That's something that I, that I feel in myself. It's something that I want to be true for the world. Um, but at the same time, as we have this thirst for freedom, we also see, you know, you brought up the Soviet experiment. We also see great willingness to oppress and sometimes even to put up with oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, how is it that we reconcile that human impulse for, for freedom with that observed experience that we see around the world of, or or maybe another way to put it is that change is often something that brings us great possibility and hope and life, but it's also often something that we very much fear and try to control and try to change. So, So there's always this kind of countervailing pressure to want to be free, but also to want to control. And you, and you kind of can't have both simultaneously. Look, I think there is, um, there, there is a, a core principle within liberalism uh, being a freedom of association and properly understood. And I think this is the key thing. What's the proper understanding of uh, freedom association? It gives rise to uh, many sort of forms of um, uh, communal uh, sort of interactivity that um, many, many of us uh, cherish, such as family, uh, neighborhood, a sense of uh, community. Uh, there is always a sort of a risk of uh, these kinds of very laudable values being misappropriated, uh, particularly uh, uh, in the service of uh, political uh, ends. So, you know, so for example, you know, we have uh, the, the, the sort of potential for uh, sort of policies to, uh, to be used uh, that, uh, that, that basically enforce um, associations that might otherwise be uh, sort of more fluid, uh, perhaps even more unstable if uh, they were actually this sincerely and genuinely the product of uh, sort of individual choices. Uh, so individuals can uh, sort of enter free associations and exit 
uh, from associations that they find uh, to be unsatisfactory. Uh, so there's always a sort of great risk that um, from a liberal perspective that uh, sort of politics uh, may sort of manifest a, a forced uh, a forced mechanism for uh, association and uh, exchange that uh, people might not otherwise want. And then in the limit, uh, and as you referred to, uh, we, we find the, the, the horrors of the, the 20th, and, and my concern is that some of those horrors of the 20th century, uh, specifically autocracy, if not totalitarianism, is probably starting to sort of creep back in. Uh, to our sort of political arrangements. And that's very closely associated with intolerance of difference and the freedom of people to actually, you know, select their own forms of associations that suit them. Uh, one, one must recognise, you know, the, the limits of our knowledge um, and sort of avoid sort of the hubris of actually knowing uh, other people's, the people that we don't know about there preferences for association you know it's there's a risk uh, politically to uh, presume uh, that uh, everyone uniformly sort of shares the same sort of preferences and tastes uh, the same kinds of associations the same kinds of living um, so I, I, I think a genuine sincere classical liberalism is as is one that um, certainly um, you know, certainly endorses a minimalist rules of the game so that we can all cooperate uh, effectively, uh, but doesn't really go um, beyond that to try to prescribe, prescribe or proscribe uh, certain modes of, of living. You know, the, the, these are sort of debates which are sort of creeping back into political discourse now. And I think liberalism provides something very attractive uh, to offer as a, as a contribution to these debates. Yeah, I think you're right that we do tend to imagine that people have these preferences and these views that are very similar to ours and that they feel the same way about uh, toleration or that they have similar reactions. And this is actually, Tocqueville made a, a similar observation when he was you know, touring the United States in the in the early 19th century, and he wrote about one of the potential dangers of a egalitarian democratic society is that it's wonderful that we all see ourselves as equals, but then it becomes easier to do just what you were saying and imagine. So if I'm if I'm equal to them, they must think the same way I do. They must feel the same way I do and want the same things that I do. Um, so which at least for me, then that immediately sends me to thinking about democratic theory. And if we're not all the same, if we are all different, what are the circumstances under which we're able to come together and negotiate around that and actually come to some kind of mutual agreement and have these peaceable arrangements, even if we aren't necessarily all on the same page about everything? Um, and I know you've written about. Uh, democracy before as well. Um, and in your in your book on inequality, which we'll talk about in, in more detail um, kind of shortly here, you cite James Buchanan, the public choice and constitutional political economist, as one of the, the big influences for that. Um, 
this is this is such a, a broad topic, so I'm not sure exactly how I want to phrase this question. Um, but if kind of if your comment and and Tocqueville's observation are right, and there's kind of this tension that exists within a liberal, within a democratic society rather, between liberalism and equality, how do we start thinking about being kind of liberal and democratic at the same time? Look, I, I, I'm um, firmly of the view that liberalism is ardently a democratic uh, theory, um, certainly as well. And so, um, and so one must sort of grapple and wrestle with uh, the kind of question that you've um, raised, and I think for 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 me, I, I think there there is a a way to sort of uh, work around or or to sort of negotiate these uh, tensions um, quite productively, or at least at least conceptually, and and that is to sort of uh, to appreciate that um, um, a democratic structure uh, may embrace. Uh, sort of uh, a, a sort of general sort of governance system that we refer to, or at least uh, Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom referred to as polycentricity. And so what we find here is a democratic arrangement uh, that actually respects uh, differences and actually respects the reality of uh, divergent uh, tastes and preferences, not only with respect to uh, the provision of essential public goods, but in terms of uh, preferred modes of uh, living, and that uh, it's it's actually quite legitimate for those differences to actually be realised through a uh, political process. Otherwise, we don't have a democracy, do we? So, uh, so, so the the so the Ostromian orientation here uh, is to recognise. Um, not only the existence, but more importantly, the desirability, the normative desirability of multiple centres of um, power uh, in which uh, people can uh, come together and, you know, collectively bargain uh, over, uh, over the, that array of sort of public goods and, and services and, regu and regulations uh, that they prefer. Uh, this, this arrangement allows for a sufficient... Uh, degree of voice, and voice is not restricted to uh, limited uh, sort of ballot initiatives that take place, you know, every three, four, five years. Um, but the the voice uh, in, uh, incorporates what you know uh, Frank Knight and James Buchanan himself uh, refers referred to as government by discussion. So there is a constant dynamic conversation that uh, occurs uh, on a frequent basis as people um, reveal um, information about their uh, sort of opinions and people by, by this uh, sort of byplay of uh, talk, people actually discover and learn uh, about uh, what is the content of public opinion and how that changes over time. So you have uh, the importance of voice mechanisms, which which I think uh, are, are certainly going to be enshrined in a democracy, certainly not in a totalitarian situation where a ruler would basically tend to uh, tell subjects not to speak 
uh, and certainly not to speak in ways that are divergent from the, the party line, so to speak. And complementing the voice mechanism, and, you know, I'm going, you know, to Hirschman, and there's complementarities between Hirschman and Ostrom, uh, we have the important uh, role played by exit uh, mechanisms as well. And so we've, we have a polycentric uh, democratic order uh, and this is an inherently liberal order, I would argue, uh, you would actually also have a mechanism by which uh, if, if the discourse gets to a standstill or for some subgroups within a population, uh, minority groups, for example, if it's found that uh, the, the content of uh, voice and discourse is not translating into preferred public policies in a given uh, jurisdiction, uh, in, a, in a given centre of uh, political power, then uh, those individuals have a right uh, to move to another jurisdiction that's more amenable uh, to their preferences. So, uh, so I think, you know, the polycentric sort of model uh, sort of encompasses this. I'd also sort of just add in uh, to, uh, to, uh, to this sort of system of thinking uh, probably a really rather underappreciated uh, strand of thinking offered by um, Robert uh, Nozick, who uh, refers to uh, the desirability of um, uh, multiple competing utopias uh, and a minimal state framework which overlays uh, the existence of these multiple utopias. So, you know, this might well correspond uh, in actually existing societies to uh, competitive federal systems. America is some sort of rough approximation uh, to, to that kind of arrangement where uh, you, you basically have uh, a given level of government, let's say presumably a higher level of government that uh, tries to uh, maintain a minimal framework uh, of public governance uh, by, which, um, uh, by which our equal liberties can be exercised, that is protecting our uh, property rights, our contractual freedoms, uh, and you know, other sort of basic parts of a liberal order, such as monetary uh, stability, freedom to trade and whatnot. Um, but uh, underneath that sort of uh, overlaying minimal state are these you know, competing multiple uh, jurisdictions that provide different forms of uh, preferred states of the world for different citizens, so different competing utopias. So um, I, I think there is a way in which uh, liberalism can provide a model by which um, the apparent tensions of unity and diversity may be reconciled, uh, at least in some sort of robust and functional Manner. We can't rule out, of course, you know, there, there are obviously going to be tensions. We can't uh, assume that, uh, you know, people are going to find themselves in unanimous agreement all the time uh, about every matter under the sun. We can't, can't presume that. Um, the, 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 there is going to be, as part of uh, a system of uh, sort of government by discussion, we're going to actually find some conflicts on the margins. But hopefully we... Uh, the, you know, the, the liberal model provides a sort of framework of a polycentric liberal democratic order, which might help us uh, get around uh, some of these tensions. In actually existing societies, we have a problem where um, uh, po policies and regulations are increasingly 
uh, monocentric in character. That is to say that um, the, 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 the possibility of competition between political jurisdictions uh, is being diminished with many of um, many uh, many of the great policy issues being decided at one level of government. The stakes are too high uh, under that kind of arrangement. And so under a polycentric uh, system, uh, we have, I believe, a very great prospect of reducing you know, the, the stakes of uh, monocentric politics, most certainly. Yeah, it all comes back to what you said at the beginning about freedom of association. And you know, freedom of association, you could almost think of it as a primary principle within liberalism out of which a lot of the other um, implications or, you know, you highlighted these three core areas that are associated with liberal value systems, market entrepreneurship, openness to civil society, limited government. In a way, these are all different versions of saying freedom of association. You know, can you associate freely in, in business and um, in your within your communities? Are you not overly limited in that by your government? You know, and I I've um, you know done some work on polycentricity as well. So I see the the merits of under the right polycentric system there being the potential for a set of democratic rules under which we interact with each other in a way that is primarily directed by freedom of association, but yet still has the, you know, the orderly features of a safe society that we like. And we do still have the possibility of being able to do collective projects together and having, you know, mutually agreed upon, um, public activities that that don't infringe on individual rights. So, so I see the beauty of that possible framework. Okay, and now, and now I'm coming to a question. <laughs> um, I see the beauty of that framework, but I also see how it's going to work in a liberal direction a lot more effectively if people are fundamentally liberal. But what if people do not have views that are fundamentally liberal. And maybe, and maybe we don't need to try to resolve this right now. Maybe I'm asking the kind of the unanswerable question, but if people are willing to kind of sacrifice that freedom in order to get some kind of control over others, or, or if it is some other value that they're prioritizing, this is a conversation that I've had with colleagues in the past with respect to police reform. So yeah, I think, you know, those of us who are concerned about that issue, it's just, it's so obvious that it's a broken system that needs to be fixed within the United States and within many other countries around the world. Um, but what if your average voter or even a plurality of voters is happy to put up with a, a little police abuse if they, because they believe it's going to make them safer at the end of the day, you know, then you can imagine freedom of association not working out so well for groups that are particularly targeted by the police, not working out all that well for people who get involved in activities that are criminalized, perhaps inappropriately criminalized. Um, what if the people don't 
hold liberal values? Will those democratic checks, I don't know, do you want to answer that or we can move on to inequality? Um, no, look, I, I think I, I think what you raise is is actually really important. And, and oftentimes when I, um, you know, sort of hear these sort of questions, I often sort of cast my mind to uh, that body of uh, scholarship that uh, asks the following rhetorical question. Uh, can liberalism accommodate, for example, socialism? Um, and to, in some circumstances, uh, specific circumstances, probably say the answer is um, is, is yes, um, but uh, as a sort of a contingent yes. And what I mean by that, and going back to this idea of uh, sort of multiple jurisdictions or uh, sort of multiple utopias which allow for the revelation of different experiments of living. It's quite possible, for example, for uh, a group of like-minded people to coalesce, let's say, in a you know, small geographic area. I'll even think about, for example, um, uh, socialist communes. Um, you know, there'd be many thousands of socialist communes that have been uh, established, uh, you know, throughout the West over over the centuries, you know, under a sort of polycentric liberal order, it's, it's quite possible for people to freely associate uh, in a uh, in 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 a manner in which uh, they sort of uh, uh, commit to a shared value of you know socialism at a, a small scale. Um, but the, the the issue there is that um, you know people have, people under a, a sort of a broader liberal. Uh, arrangement, a, a sort of meta-utopia, are, are basically free still to exit uh, such uh, communities. So, uh, so, and so, and so, the impl an implication there uh, is that um, these uh, small-scale socialist communities that are situated uh, within a broader liberal order. Um, you know, probably not uh, self-sustaining because, you know, people will soon discover or relearn, uh, you know, the basic insight that um, a, a non-socialist uh, sort of order found elsewhere in society that provides an abundance of um, goods uh, that uh, effect most effectively meets human capabilities uh, that uh, sort of provides the, the most robust improvements in well-being, well, the, these will be found to be much preferred uh, to, uh, to these sort of small-scale uh, socialist communities. So um, I, I think the answer, the answer is a contingent uh, yes uh, in, in that kind of example for as long as there's freedom of exit, which is in, in quintessentially a part of freedom association. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, I'll, I'll just, just turn to this briefly, if I may, um, you turn to the example of policing. And so now we're sort of dealing with a, a quite different set of issues in that we are thinking about the provision of public services that are used uh, in an arbitrary manner, which are actually used uh, to enforce uh, discrimination and stratification. Uh, different groups of people. Different groups of people are being mistreated by by the police, and this is this is a you know a hot button issue um, in the US and elsewhere around the world. Um, the, the, there is a liberal key liberal principle of non discrimination uh, and relational equality, and the, these two are in, inevitably tied at the hip. And what this insists is that there is an equality of treatment, fundamental dignity, and respect. Uh, including with respect to the provision, 
of public services. After all, taxpayers pay, um, you know, uh, are conscripted to pay uh, for these public services such as policing. And so it, it is a fundamental condition of liberal public governance that um, these services are provided uh, without fear or favour uh, across all of the population, all of the population that have actually paid for the services. So there, there are some different issues necessarily that I've thrown in there, but um, and the, certainly what, what I'm saying is not the final answer to uh, to to the um, you know to the the very interesting questions which continue um, you know to uh, energize the minds of uh, liberals. Uh, but that they would be my sort of initial uh, sort of responses. So thinking about freedom of exit. But if there's no freedom of exit, then thinking about a non-discrimination principle, right, as a core part of uh, the, 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 the liberal order, uh, including public governance. Yeah, I, you gave me a little bit of reason for hope, Michaela, so thank you for that. But yeah, I think that freedom of exit is critically important. That's something that... I've emphasized a lot in conversations about women's economic rights, because when people are denied the ability to earn and provide for themselves, that is a form of a restriction on exit um, from a country, but also maybe even just from your family or the community that you, that you live in. So I, I think, you know, if we, if we do recognize the importance of that freedom of exit, a, a natural next thought for me is, okay, so how can we, you know, exit is never going to be costless. We all, you know, it's one of the first things that comes up in any conversation about this is that it's very difficult for people to make big changes in their lives. And of course that's true, but you know, what can we do as a society to facilitate that freedom of exit and kind of give these institutions their, these democratic institutions, their best chance for actually serving people and kind of, and, and staying constrained. Um, but I want to, um, I, I want to make sure that we have plenty of time to talk about this issue of inequality and the wonderful book, um, that you wrote about it. Thank you. Um, and I, I, I'm so impressed by your, by your scholarship and you, you know, for, for me, it kind of, you, you were writing this when I was working on my PhD at George Mason and it almost came out of nowhere for me that there's, you know, there's somebody, you know, Richard Wagner was just kind of had recently written this stuff on entangled political economy. And all of a sudden there's somebody from Australia who's written a whole book about it. I, you know, I, I thought I knew, I thought everybody that was working on this was, uh, was somebody I, you know, I knew through, um, you know, my economics and through my program. Um, so it was just a really exciting discovery for me to for me to find your book. Um, but I, I think the first question I want to ask you, and, and then um, we can talk about kind of some of the core arguments. One of the observations you make in the introduction to this book is that many people who consider themselves liberal find it difficult to see inequality as something that's problematic. Um, and you don't speculate in the book as to why, um, you know, if I, if I had to speculate and maybe I shouldn't, but I will anyway, um, maybe it's because they, it's not that they don't see the problem, but they just think it's low priority relative to issues like economic growth. Um, 
I think sometimes there's some reluctance to, to dig into the conversation about inequality because of how often historically movements that use the rhetoric of equality have been oppressive or resulted in the creation of you know, large public apparatuses that um, many in the liberal camp would view as unnecessarily restrictive or you know, holding back economic growth, holding back freedom of association. Um, the world has changed a lot since you wrote that book though. So I guess, so I just want to, you know, the world as a whole, we've kind of been through a lot the past few years. So I guess I, I just want to ask you to, to share some of your thoughts on that experience of, you know, writing a book at, at the time as a, an economist, now you're an economist and a sociologist, but at the time, primarily an economist, writing that book about, a, you know, in a conversation that maybe some people didn't want to have, and how has the nature of that conversation changed in the last few years? Um, so thank you very much for the, the very kind uh, words. Um, and uh, I just want to sort of reinforce the basic notion that uh, classical liberals um, are found uh, scattered in pockets <laughs> around and around the world. And, yeah. and, and so it's, it's so for me, it's very gratifying to know that uh, that, that my work sort of ha has been sort of received. Um, positively. Um, so uh, writing the book, uh, which was my first book, was a really enjoyable and enriching experience, I have to say. And, and perhaps the, the, the most difficult part of uh, writing the book was in the conceptual and thematic planning, given that, you know, inequality is, you know, a major field of research, effort and inquiry in its own right. Um, but once I arrived at an estimation of the potential to explore the topic, of inequality using Richard Wagner's entangled political economy framework, the remaining challenge was to actually keep uh, the work within uh, initially agreed word, word length bounds. It's just uh, so much abundant opportunity to actually apply that EPE framework uh, to this question. Um, so in terms of my, um, I guess my own sort of scholarly uh, sort of repertoire, I, I, I was very, I felt I was very much prepared to uh, write the book because I had uh, enjoyed sort of roughly about 20 years of prior experience uh, to academia, both within uh, sort of professional circles, uh, including within an Australian think tank. And this um, allowed me to encounter firsthand uh, debates and policy arguments with respect to questions of income distribution. So that helped. Uh, and so uh, another, another sort of issue which made me feel that I had a, a strong scholarly base uh, to write this effort was that my own of my own experiences. Um, uh, so I was an undergraduate um, at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia in the early 1990s, and I was probably the only sort of classical liberal in my economics class. So, you know, Berlin Wall fell, that demanded explanation. So I went around pottering around in the uh, university's library, trying to sort of find out, you know, what's really a, what's a credible explanation for things that I'm seeing, right? These amazing epochal events. And so I stumbled upon uh, the likes of the Cato Journal, Dick Wagner's works, 
um, other, um, other sort of research outputs produced by GMU scholars at the time. Uh, yes, they're all contained in, in, even in a faraway place as Brisbane, Australia. And so, you know, since that time, the early 1990s, you know, I've been um, providing myself every opportunity, you know, to really delve quite deeply um, into uh, Austrian Bloomington and Virginia schools of political economy. Um, how have things changed over the past few years? Um, I actually do think that there um, has been some productive engagement by classical uh, liberals uh, to uh, toward matters of inequality. Uh, so in this respect, I'll probably briefly refer to the work of the late great American classical liberal uh, Steve Horwitz, uh, who together with uh, one of your amazing colleagues, an incredible economist, uh, Vincent uh, Geloso, uh, have illuminated the distinctions between so-called good and bad determinants of inequality. Um, this is actually uh, you know, sort of a key apparatus uh, for my book. So certain entanglements which give rise to material inequalities, some of those are morally unexceptional. So, for example, if people exercise their entrepreneurial talent or invest in their human capital and, you know, sell their talents, sell their wares, sell their goods and services to other people on a voluntary, mutually agreeable basis, that gives rise potentially to inequality. People are different after all. This is why we trade. And so, um, and so uh, you know, inequalities will arise. But those inequalities are not morally uh, dubious or exceptional. On the other hand, there are a range of inequalities as a liberal one can largely identify with regressive government policies that promote upward redistribution, that encourage rent-seeking processes uh, through uh, legal, regulatory and fiscal policies. These um, drive inequalities uh, in a way that limits growth and opportunity. And, and this, this distinction between good and bad sources of inequality is something that Geloso um, uh, and Horwitz had raised uh, since the time of writing my book, but certainly sort of fit in with the broad apparatus, uh, the framework that I've explicated. And I'd also raise, once, once again, Vince's work more recently um, with uh, Phil Magnus, uh, uh, an amazing uh, paper now published in uh, the economic journal that I would encourage everyone to read that actually uh, recalibrates um, uh, Thomas Piketty's uh, data set uh, with respect to uh, measures of income inequality. So what uh, Geloso and Magnus find is that uh, the degree of income inequality uh, in the in the US, and I'm, I'm guessing it might might I suspect it might be the case of other countries too, uh, given the the problems of um, the quality of taxation. Uh, data, income records and taxation data, they find that uh, inequality is overstated uh, uh, under in, within uh, Piketty's data set. So, uh, so the, there is a growing reception, right, to this issue, even if there has been some sort of normative suspicion about uh, sort of inequality being uh, misappropriated or uh, used as a tool to justify uh, greater government involvement in the economy. There is actually a liberal pathway uh, to uh, appreciating equality. After all, um, one of the great luminaries of liberalism, Adam Smith, included uh, 
you know, uh, equality as part of his statement of um, a liberal plan that included also freedom and justice. Equality stands as a tripod. And so I think liberals should actually be concerned about inequality to, in order to convey uh, to policymakers and, and the public two or three things. So the first thing is that um, th there needs to be a better understanding of inequality on the market as informed by a process of economic interaction by mutually agreeable individuals that is largely morally unexceptionable. Mm -hmm. uh, the second point I'd uh, uh, suggest as to why inequality should be of interest to classical liberals is, um, is that there is a malign effect of fiscal, legal and regulatory policies in aggravating inequality owing to the effects of policy on suppressing pro-equality or equalising market competition and entrenching special interest privileges. And something else I'll just add in, to actually remind liberals of the place of equality within, as I said, the, the liberal philosophical triadic scheme of freedom, justice and equality, with equality properly understood as an equality in basic human dignity, mutual respect and treatment in accordance with the rule of law. Yeah. Um so this this reminds me of another debate that has a, a similar structure. So if you're having a conversation about is acquiring wealth good? There are two very simple answers to that question that I think are both wrong. So one is to say, yes, definitely good. Always good. Well, but what if you are using violence to acquire wealth? What if you are stealing to acquire wealth? Um, we can't, you know, we can't just say greed is good because in the wrong circumstance, greed can use all kinds of nefarious tools to get what it's want, get right. what it wants. So if we focus on those and then say no, so acquiring wealth is bad, then we miss out on all of those productive exchanges and the benefits of those. So um, correct me where I'm wrong or missing nuance, but I, it sounds like the the big picture you're trying to share here is that the answer to the question of is inequality problematic? Similarly, that also cannot be a simple yes or a simple no. It has to be an it depends. It depends on what's driving that inequality. Correct. Um, so this, this brings um, uh, right to the fore a contemporary classical liberal appreciation of institutional equality. So uh, whether inequality is problematic or not uh, is contingent upon the, the, the nature and the shape and the quality of institutions. Uh, institutions that are inclusive, institutions that uh, empower individuals uh, to exercise their entrepreneurial uh, talents, uh, their human capital, uh, their, their, their distributed and dispersed unique knowledge um, in competition, uh, in fair competition uh, with uh, other people may induce uh, as a byproduct uh, inequalities in an income distribution, again, which uh, are not morally exceptionable. Um, and um, the, so the key here is that uh, under this situation, um, the, the, 
the 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 game is being ordered by rules um, that um, allow uh, basically for a free flowing interplay uh, between individuals uh, with no artificial sort of or, or particularized restraints or even advantages as provided by um, a, a regulatory or or fiscal system. Uh, you start having problems in terms of uh, inequality becoming a sort of genuinely social problem uh, when inequalities are manifest under an institutional structure in which uh, people are incentivized uh, to seek particular advantages for themselves at the expense of everyone else uh, through the the ages of uh, government uh, policy and and legal. Uh, favoritism. Uh, one, I think, one of the the most wonderful contributions to uh, modern liberalism is the book uh, written by James Buchanan and Roger Congleton, the late 1990s, "Politics by Principle, Not Interest," in which they, um, you know, put uh, in in highlights uh, the 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 generality criterion uh, as a criterion for being able to sort of tease out. Uh, these uh, varying effects. So if you have um, a a political system in which generality and observance of the rule of law, uh, non-discrimination, equal treatment of all um, under the law, to the extent that these are observed, then inequalities which occur uh, under those sort of the umbrella of such uh, arrangements of generality would be largely seen as uh, un, unexceptional and and in fact are, are, are a byproduct of a sort of dynamic economy and society in which uh, sort of uh, betterment uh, the quest for betterment uh, is respected and the fruits of betterment are widely shared. That's fantastic. Um, so when we do have these rules that allow people to take advantage of others in this way that generates inequality. Um, well, let me, let me rephrase that. Not, I don't want to ask when we do have them. I want to ask what do they look like? And this kind of relates back to the question of how concerned should we be as, you know, if you're a person who has liberal values, how concerned should you be about it? What does this look like? How big of a problem is it? Um, What are some of the, you know, can you give us any examples of some of the ways these rules are built into our our legal systems, our political systems. I don't, you have a chapter in the book on uh, the on tax um, policy and, and other regulations. Um, so, you know, I, I think some of these drivers of inequality, like you mentioned, there's more focus on this issue in the past few years. So more of them are starting to come to light. But I think there's still a lot to uncover. So can you uncover maybe just a little bit of it for us? Sure. Um, so I would say that um, political action certainly has been prevalent in all societies from antiquity. And so it stands to reason that political 
actors and the organisations they create and maintain, including government itself, <laughs> naturally, are actually deeply implicated in economic inequalities. And this is particularly the case if choice and effort are winnowed through and influenced by politics rather than markets or any other realm of civil society, which is centred upon uh, di dyadic and voluntary exchanges. What does inequality look like? Well, uh, we can look um, uh, regrettably um, even uh, until recent history to see what inequality looks like. Um, governments have um, intertwined, have tended to intertwine fiscal, regulatory and legal policies in a manner that have the effect of entrenching discrimination between groups of people on the basis of gender, race and other criteria. I'm very well aware of your own important scholarship that refers to uh, the effect of government policies, the restrictiveness of uh, property rights that prevented women uh, from able to from being able to exercise upward economic mobility. That's one very important example. Uh, another um, example, a primary and odious example of what inequality looks like was the, the racially discriminatory legal systems in the American South, uh, collectively known as the Jim Crow laws, which had largely persisted until the 1960s, which segregated on the basis of race, the ability of individuals to access private accommodation and services and even uh, to, to vote. Um, there are, if we sort of think about, there, there, there are actually lots of contemporary sort of uh, examples of uh, discriminatory legal treatment still sort of baked into our political systems. And um, I, one, one sort of um, uh, reform I would always advocate to try to address these is in as much as um, um, liberal reformists wish to um, conduct, for example, the likes of uh, expenditure or fiscal audits of the state, uh, liberals should actually consider generality audits, right, you know, in the spirit of what Buchanan and Congleton talk about. So to thoroughly examine the way in which uh, so not only legal system but regulatory and fiscal systems uh, sort of maintain uh, situations in which uh, people are discriminatory, uh, treated in a discriminatory manner. The, the whole range of, you know, small and large examples I can think of. So you can think of... Uh, sort of same-sex partners, for example, in certain jurisdictions in the US and other parts of the world not being able to adopt, right, on a sort of the same basis of as, um, as um, uh, heterosexual uh, sort of partners. Uh, one can think about a, a sort of even larger example of uh, sort of immigration and immigration restrictions, uh, which have the effect of... Um, of um, uh, of aggravating global inequalities, because after all, if migrants are free to move and to be able to send remittances back home, that has a powerful effect of reducing global inequalities, uh, which, uh, which is a, 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 um, a, a, a very laudable um, exercise in, in my view. Um, and there's also another uh, example that has been somewhat under the radar, but is has been gathering growing attention amongst uh, liberal scholars. I refer to, uh, in this context, the, the work of Roger Koppel in particular, who has been raising concerns about um, 
legal and policy uh, discriminations uh, made on the basis of technocratic expertise. There was actually a really important uh, opinion piece published a day or two ago in the Wall Street Journal by Roger and um, Abby uh, Devereaux uh, referring to a new uh, US uh, federal um, agency, um, which is, uh, you know, supposedly has the, the, the sort of the divine uh, sort of power to be able to sort of separate what is information versus disinformation, however uh, conceived. So you, you sort of have, uh, you, you sort of have this sort of growth and coincident with so-called, the emergence of so-called independent regulatory agencies, uh, sort of a, um, a development of technocratic uh, expertise, which uh, basically sort of confounds uh, democratic political processes, because after all, um, um, it, it is actually um, the, the legislators who are accountable uh, to the electors and uh, the agencies are meant to be accountable to the legislators. Um, even another example of that, just very briefly, uh, there are proposals in the Australian context uh, amongst uh, some uh, sort of climate change policy advocates to, in, to instigate a new climate commission in which the climate commission gives policy directives, the government uh, somehow um, enforced to follow the directives of this independent commission, and but also give uh, detailed responses as to why the government will want to sort of depart from uh, the, the technocratic advice provided by the Climate Commission. So that sort of flips democratic accountabilities up to, upside down in, in a way that actually entrenches uh, inequalities that, uh, that, that are seen as, as risky and dangerous by classical liberals, apart from the equal treatment of equals and the fundamental rights of citizen voters to decide uh, for themselves the political arrangements and policies under which they prefer to live. Yeah, and those discriminatory policies actually translate then to differences in experience in the world. And I think, you know, we recognize that so obviously when it comes to some policy areas, but I, I do feel like we have sometimes blind spots um, if the policy is only affecting a subset of the population in that way. Um, another example, maybe just to, to add one to your excellent list that I've been fascinated with lately, is there's an excellent book by Caroline Criado Perez called Invisible okay. Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Um, and so particularly uh, with respect to your point about technocracy, when we start to make political decisions through technocratic means, now we're not just dealing with political biases, we're also dealing with scientific biases and measurement biases that are gonna be informing what those um, you know, quote unquote experts imagine to be right. And so, in, I mean, in this book, she just goes through uh, an incredible accounting of the ways in which uh, you know, the scientific process has not really studied uh, women in the same way it's studied uh, male bodies. Yes, I know of this work, and it is it is important contribution. I think that's an excellent uh, addition that you make to our little list. Yeah, it gets, I mean, this is, I think, entangled political economy is the right framework for this because it really is these 
connections that need to be teased out between the way we practice politics and the impact that then that winds up having on our ability to, you know, to bring back in a phrase you started with at the beginning, how those politics affect our ability to relate to each other as dignified equals in this open space. Mm -hmm. um, so we're getting short on time here. So I want to uh, kind of bring some of this together by asking you a final question. You know, we only barely got to, to scratch the surface of all the excellent work that you've done. So maybe we'll be able to talk again, but certainly in the meantime, everybody should be reading um, your books, Inequality and also Freedom and Contention, your more recent book on social movements. Um, but with the, the study and the thought that you've put into this issue of equality in a free society, what are some of the opportunities that you see? Um, I don't know, a lot of my questions have maybe had a more pessimistic tone. So I wanna put an optimistic tone on this one and ask, you know, what are some of the opportunities you see going forward to help us, to help move us towards that vision? What can, what can we do? I think it's very, very easy sometimes to feel um, disempowered as a, an individual who is kind of living in a world being batted around by this giant machine of, of politics and, and the major institutions of our world. But, you know, so what can we actually do as people to kind of move forwards towards this vision of liberal equality? So, um, Although there seem to be um, many academics and certainly commentators who are willing to announce uh, the, the end of liberalism uh, before time, um, an appreciation of uh, liberalism um, as a dynamic system of thought in the service of discovering how to live better and freer together uh, suggests to me that there are actually numerous opportunities going forward uh, to achieve the, the liberal principles of liberty, justice and equality. And I'm actually quite hopeful, um, uh, even in these sort of vexing and most uh, troubling times. So uh, to some extent, liberalism it does enjoy periodic resurgences of interest, if not popularity, as a result of circumstance. So, and I, and I think that politicians, uh, so not politicians, but actually populations, uh, will actually eventually tire of rampant price inflation, economic low economic growth, and all the biases and unfairness that is emanating from regulatory and budgetary captured by special interests, and all in their own different ways suppress economic and social opportunities. So a, a political liberalism that grasps the metal of illustrating how, for example, supply-side reforms can transform limited life opportunities into abundant opportunities for all, um, I, I think that will en enjoy certainly temporal flashes of electoral support, uh, not only in the US, but elsewhere. Um, but the sustainability of such outcomes will very much depend on the consistency and integrity of um, political alliances that uh, liberal adherents forge, and also the quality of our arguments as well. Um, so that said, I don't think uh, liberalism is necessarily reducible to action in the, the political realm. Uh, and liberalism, as I've mentioned, is a set of ideological and philosophical dispositions concerning how to live good, flourishing lives. Um, I suspect that a liberal praxis okay, will become more prominent over coming years and decades. 
as our liberal adherents increasingly engage with a range of prefigurative experimentalist activities um, that only not only seek to escape oppressive situations to exit, but actually explore what it actually means to be free in the 21st century. So uh, what particular institutional and governance configurations I have in mind and that will emerge in the future, we can't in, you know, entirely predict it with uh, great uh, precision given the unknowability of cultural and social technological change and so on. Um, but there, there are certain sort of uh, hints at, um, at, at this kind of liberal praxis uh, coming to the fore. So if we take examples like blockchain or charter cities or mm. free uh, economic zones and other contemporary experiments as a guide to what the future might lie ahead, and I also anticipate that a liberal praxis will, uh, to some extent, turn away from uh, some of the insider politics, the formal politics that I've briefly mentioned, and probably towards a more outsider social movement repertoire, such as protests, uh, as a key um, as key means of expressing uh, political grievances and uh, demands. And finally, I actually think that. Um, you know, certainly when uh, it seems to me that the forces of social illiberalism are on the march, uh, I think a so-called thick movement libertarianism um, is also going to be really important. Uh, liberals will find themselves alliancing with a range of um, other figures and activists, uh, for example, even the, the moderate left, for example, to challenge bigotry uh, that, um, that, is, um, that, that works to facilitate exclusion and network closures that aggravate inequality. So I actually see um, the 21st century liberalism uh, as being a sort of a, a vibrant project, but it might actually take on some qualitative differences compared to what uh, was seen in the, uh, the 20th century, which was largely a sort of formal uh, political project. We might actually see um, a diversification, um, you know, of liberal activity and of course, um, all, all of that sort of predicted or envisaged modes of liberal activism must be complemented by uh, continuing ac academic involvement by uh, liberal thinkers. Um, it, it is very much the case that liberal thinkers provide uh, in a leading or a forward manner um, many of the uh, sort of ideas that get adopted and embraced in actually existing societies, albeit with the lag. So um, there, there's still a very important role uh, for, uh, for scholarship uh, in, in liberalism in, during the 21st century. So I think there's really much to do to advance freedom in our everyday lives. And it will be really exciting to see how liberalism advances onward and upward uh, during the remainder of our lives and for those who follow us. Oh, that's beautiful. You have so much to share, Michaela. I feel like we have so much to learn from you. Um, so, you know, just thank you so much for being here today. It uh, was just fantastic. Thank you. It's an honor and privilege to always talk to you. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, 
please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.